Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. So let me welcome to the show. Uh, she's here to talk about something else, but of course, we you know we've had uh, her on many times, especially uh, following the death of Chadwick Boseman because she is a colorectal surgeon, proud mama of a baby and a baby to come. Let me welcome back to the show, Dr. Erin King Mullins. Hey, Corona Mama. Hey there. How you doing? How are the good. rebels out there? <laughs> yes, ma'am. How you feeling? Good. You feeling good. You get, you said you have how many weeks left to the new Six baby? Six weeks to the day. So I'm I'm counting it down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So are you are you do you you know you have a date to go in to induce or you you going you know because the baby um, come when the baby feels like it I think unless you. Well, usually they do, but um, because some of the other issues that I had post the prior um, pregnancy, they prefer to, for me to be a scheduled um, okay. procedure. So right. that's, we're going to go and pray for the health and safety and wellness of everybody around so we can bypass some of the issues from the last time. Yes. In the name of Jesus, uh, touch and agree with you on that. Um, Crohn's disease is something that, that we don't see frequently or people like, it's one of those things where you don't really know he had to have a colostomy bag at some point. They removed Mm -hmm. six inches of his lower intestine, six inches, Mm -hmm. um, got worse. The intestines didn't heal. They were perforated. Um, he went septic. Like he was fighting for his life. At one point he had gotten down to 105 pounds. Like people, you know, we see him today. You don't know what somebody's going through. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Crohn's disease is what we call, it's an inflammatory bowel disease. So there's, um, its counterpart is ulcerative colitis. So people may hear about that as well. And we still to this day don't know the exact trigger for either one of those. But um, the best way to describe them is that they're almost like an autoimmune disease of the GI tract. So something triggers the immune system and the immune system of the GI tract starts having crazy inflammation and, you know, to some degree wants to fight itself. Um, Specifically for Crohn's disease, it can, it it can involve the entire GI tract. So anywhere from literally the mouth to the anal area, there's some areas that are most common, um, the kind of juncture point where the small intestine meets the large intestine, that's kind of the, the most common area. But like I said, it can affect anywhere. And the there are no necessarily like hallmark symptoms that just you have this one symptom and oh my gosh, you have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. It's usually that you have like a constellation of symptoms. And that's what makes it so difficult to diagnose um, because especially when it does uh, often initially appear in younger, you know, people who are otherwise healthy, you know, no major medical problems. And so like, oh, you're having stomach pain. Um, Oh, you're having diarrhea. You know, so did you eat something bad? Did you travel somewhere different? You know, oh, you know, if you're seeing a little bit blood in the bowel movements, oh, is it just hemorrhoids? Because you're too young and healthy to have anything else. Um, And so typically it takes a series of events, um, a series of going to the hospital or going to the doctor. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the losing weight and all of those other things to be more aggressive to do a colonoscopy, a CT scan, you know, any of those types of things that help in the diagnosis. Um, He said he had to cut out coffee, red meat, alcohol, you know, because they they triggered um, his his, the, you know, the, the symptoms that, you know, the mm-hmm. negative symptoms, how, how much of an impact does the diet have on things like colon cancer, you know, anal cancer, Crohn's disease? So a lot of it, um, 
is really about the way your body processes things. And so when we talk about, for example, colon cancer, there are certain foods that are literally the fuel for the colon cells, like what they feed off to get healthy. Um, so fiber is like the key source. It, you're, the way it's broken down in your system, it, it forms what we call are the short chain fatty acids, uh, butyric acid, all those fancy terms. But that's what the literal... Um, nutrient source is for the colon cells. And then other things are broken down into toxins. So uh, diets that are high in saturated fats, um, diets that are high in red meats, you know, those things, the way your body processes it, the byproducts serve almost as toxins to the cells. So that's why it's important. Now, those things aren't the end all be all for good digestive and colon health, but those are definitely things that you want to make sure you have those diets high in uh, fiber and limit those other things to have that strike that you know, good balance. Eight six six eight zero one eight two five five. You know the yeast and bread. You know, like, uh, and bread is delicious. Uh, I yes, you know, when yes. I eat bread, I only do sourdough now because of the gut health uh, component. Mm -hmm. I hear it's low glycemic. You know, like you want to put yourself in a position to win, even if you like things, you may not want to give <laughs> right. them up, but you don't want to be doubled over and having your intestines removed either. Right. Right. Doing it the right way. And, you know, a part of it is when you compare um, the Western diet here in America compared to some of the other countries, you know, a lot, there's a lot of processes that occur um, between the farm and it reaching our table or between the crop and it reaching our table. And so that's what really kind of impacts a lot of these things. And so, you know, there, there, it's not that bread or carbs or wheat or gluten, unless you have the allergy, are specifically bad for you. But sometimes the way they're processed, the way they're combined with other things, and just sometimes just the overwhelming nature of it. You know, if you wake up in the morning and you're having, you know, a croissant sandwich for breakfast, and then, you know, another sort of sandwich for dinner, and then, I mean, for lunch, and then pasta for dinner, um, I mean, that's carb, 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 that's overload. Your body can only handle so much of anything, you know, same with alcohol, like after a certain point, your body can't tolerate alcohol anymore. And that's when people, you know, get intoxicated. So the same can happen with anything mm. that you put in your body. There's limits to how your body can process anything. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know intoxication was the result of, of you, your body not being able to handle the alcohol. That's yeah, just uh, just yeah, the, the byproducts that the, the certain kind of byproducts kind of get built up. And so, you know, the less you drink, your liver metabolizes it quickly into byproducts, that's fine. But if you overload it, it can't necessarily process those things. And so it lingers. And that's what kind of causes some of the um, yes, symptoms that we see. <laughs> Uh, let's take a call before we get into uh, to this this month being Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, Alonzo in Charlotte, North Carolina is on. He has a question for you, Dr. Aaron King Mullins. Hi, Alonzo. Welcome. Hello, Karen. And hello, doctor. How are you guys today? Awesome. Hi, I'm doing well, Alonzo. Right. Thanks for calling in. All right. Fantastic. Well, I, I just want to say that as far as Crohn's disease, I've experienced all of that you guys talked about uh, earlier and went through the surgery and have recovered, and I'm loving life now that I've learned to do it the right way. So I just wanted to put it out there that people um, can turn it around. It's possible. It's not the end of the world when you're diagnosed with it. You just have to change that lifestyle up. 
Good you for agree? you. Thanks for yeah. calling in. No, nah, that's awesome. And um, definitely thank you for calling. Men, you know, don't like to go to the doctors. We've talked a lot about this on the show. I don't blame <laughs> them. You know, doctors have, have uh, you know, it, particularly in our community, have not been uh, as as accommodating and, and kind and healing as they should be. So I get the, the fear. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I appreciate this family of men. They, they go get their checkups. And I, I love that, you know, because we need y'all here healthy. So yeah. thank you. And sometimes I say, you know, the best way to keep us away is actually just to see us, check in with us every once in a while. Um, you know, once you get checked and we give you the good bill of health, all right, you know, we'll see you, you know, we'll see you when it's time. But, you know, but ignoring us is not um, going to keep us away. So on, on that, this, this is, uh, you know, and I like every, you know, they have all of these months, you know, but I think every day should be awareness, <laughs> awareness day or whatever. <laughs> but this is a uh, cervical um, cancer awareness month. What, uh, and you particularly wanted us to pay attention to the virus that causes it primarily talk about that Dr. King Mullins. Yes. So I know a lot of people are like, okay, it's cervical cancer awareness month. She's a colorectal surgeon. So why is she here? Um, the importance of this is the fact that cervical cancer is caused by the HPV virus, the human papilloma virus. Um, Lots of research has gone into this particular virus over this last several years. So, you know, decades ago when women were found to have a test available to detect pre-cancer and cancer early on, cervical cancer, no one really knew what that pap smear was testing for. They knew that abnormal cells were happening and eventually that could turn into cancer. And then eventually the research led to finding this HPV virus. Well, what we now know is that this HPV virus can actually cause different types of cancer. So um, anal cancer, and it can cause other cancers in women in that area, the, the what we call is the anogenital area. So the vulva, the vagina, the cervix. But also recently over the past couple of decades, we've really isolated the fact that the HPV virus can cause certain head and neck cancers. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's another show for another day and for another uh, specialist. But <laughs> how does but... it travel up that far? How's it getting up well, that far? So, in the basic basic form, HPV is considered um a sexually transmitted infection. Um it's the most common sexually transmitted infection. And so anything that can be vol- involved in sexual contact can be related to the HPV virus. And, and the reason why um, the, the virus likes to live in certain cells. Um, so when we talk about, for example, you know, colon cancer, um, the cells that it attacks are uh, um, columnar cells, but sorry, that's a little bit too technical, but the, the different types of cells that lie in the cervix, in the anus, in the head, neck area, they're, they're squamous cells. They're like, there's the cells for the lining of the skin in that area. And so those areas are kind of when you, when you, when you're formed and developed from an embryo on up, they have the similar cell lines. And so that's why this HPV virus likes certain cells. Um, a lot of people freak out when they say, oh my gosh, you know, I have an STD. Well, I mean, it's simple contact that causes it just in that area. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you've been crazy promiscuous, you know, um, or anything like that. It's just the fact that any type of contact in that region, um, if there's active virus there, can be transmitted. Hmm. So Michael Douglas had um, what he said was HPV mm-hmm. caused neck throat cancer. Yep. 
Yep. From from he said performing a lot of cunnilingus. This is what he said. I think sure. he said yes. this. You said mm-hmm. sure. Okay. <laughs> but um, you know, and so the the thing is that and there's a stigma around it that really, really uh, we need to get rid of so that people can be uh, tested and treated early. Um, you know, the, there's several strains of the virus. Not all of the strains actually cause uh, cancer. And so I like the fun, kind of fact that all of this is coming to play with during the time of the pandemic, because we're talking about COVID and all the different strains of COVID, uh, COVID. So that helps people kind of really understand the concept of the HPV. But there's there's certain high risk strains that cause the cancer, but it's so prevalent. Greater than 90% of people are exposed to the HPV virus by the time they reach the age of 40. So it's everywhere. And that's why we recommend the HPV vaccine. And we recommend it for men and women, boys and girls, starting at the age range of like nine to 12 before sexual intercourse even occurs, hopefully. Um, But it's recommended from starting in that age group, but it's actually approved up to the age of 45 in both populations. So for all my listeners out there, if you're listening, if you're 45 or under, go inquire with your PCP about getting the HPV vaccine so you can prevent yourself some cancer in the future. What are the symptoms? So it starts out with the precancerous changes. There's no symptoms um, at all. And then uh, the, the sneaky form of the virus that causes the cancer starts making changes under the microscope. Uh, very, you know, basically small changes, small changes until it rears its ugly head. And then it may start causing some irritation, some itching, some bleeding. People, they may feel a lump in the area. Now we're all talking about the anus, but, you know, feel a lump in the area. They think it's a hemorrhoid. And so by then, you know, it's not that it's too late, but, you know, the process is kind of far gone. And the reason why it's so important in women, um, the one thing is, you know, once a woman has been diagnosed with HPV and has had, you know, some precancerous change in the cervical area, you know, it can travel to the back. It can travel to the anal area. And the studies have shown that it travels back there regardless of whether or not a woman has actually even engaged in anal intercourse. So it's not that you've had anal intercourse to actually, you know, have the, the virus in that area. And so, and also what kind of plays into the research and why we think that is, is that, you know, the average age for a woman who would typically get cervical cancer would be like kind of in their thirties, but we've done such a great job with doing pap smears on a regular basis and having guidelines and understanding when and how often you get tested. You know, women who in another day and time would have succumbed to cervical cancer are living longer and now it's traveled to the anal area and it takes time for those changes to happen under the microscope to eventually get cancer. And so we're seeing, I'm seeing women who've had a history. Oh yeah, I had a Colposcopy. I had a leap procedure. I had some precancerous cells removed in the cervix, you know, 30 years ago, you know, the average age of um, onset for anal cancer for those women are going to be late fifties, early sixties. So it had time to brew, you know, over that time frame. And so unfortunately there's no standardized guideline right now for detection in, um, of anal precancer or cancer in women. And so it's about number one, getting the word out there to patients and providers alike, because there's a lot of physicians that don't even know this information. So we can get the data so we can kind of set up a process to be able to check and detect and and, and prevent. So get your pap smear, get your pap smear annually, get your pap smear. And Mm -hmm. for men, 
what what do they need to do? They need to go get a colonoscopy. Need to like what? How are they getting checked? So with men, it's a little bit different. The breakdown is so when you consider you know compare quote unquote healthy men and healthy women. Women are two times as likely to get anal cancer and one and a half times as likely to die. And that's all just related to the risk of the um, having the HPV in the cervical area. With men, it's a little bit of a different process. Those who are going to be most at risk are going to be um, uh, men who have uh, sex with other men and men who are HIV positive. Those are gonna be our highest risk groups. And again, there's really no no really standardized guideline. It's in the works. There's been some studies, um, some real good headway in studies in um, the, the HIV positive male population, but um, those are the ones that are gonna be at highest risk. The other uh, folks that you gotta look out for is you know anybody who, so the, the less, dangerous strains of the HPV virus can cause the warts, you know, so people say like, oh, I have, you know, anal warts or, you know, what is, what is a wart? Is it, is it a growth? What is that? Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, when people have warts on their hand and stuff. Um, and it's actually, so that's also in your anus or around your anus, like you can see them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So that's funny that you bring that up because yeah, so the warts that people have on their hand that, you know, when you go online and they got, you know, you go to the grocery store and they got that little, oh, just freeze your warts off. That's also the HPV virus. That's a completely different strain of it. Um, so the way like herpes could be on your mouth, it could be, you know, like there's like, um, yep. mm-hmm. I forgot what they said. Oh, chicken pox is a form of herpes or is it this, uh, shingles is a part of is, is something. Uh, shingles is um, chicken pox. Right. But one of them mm-hmm. is like herpes. Anyway, um, okay, all right. So, oh, it's a lot to consider. Can you put the wart stuff on your on your bottom the, that you can get for no. your hand? Okay, no. <laughs> we do have, you know, there are how do you treat that, can be that done Dr. in the Mom? office? So there depend depending on the severity of it. Um, when you're seen by the physician office, there's some prescription creams that can be used at home. There's some topical medications, chemical medications that can be used in the office. If it's too extensive, then they have to be surgically removed. Um, But the importance of paying attention to that is because even though the strains of the HPV virus that cause the warts don't lead to cancer, there is a high risk of what we call as co-infection. So right now, you know how everybody's talking about, oh, some people have COVID and flu at the same time. Well, you can be infected with more than one strain of HPV. And like we were discussing previously, the bad strains don't really have show outward signs. It won't pop up like a wart. You won't know it's there until it starts really making a precancer. And so if someone has, I know (laughs) it's a lot. Um, So if someone has the warts, they need to be checked to make sure they don't have those high risk strains at well, excuse me, as well, that can then rear their ugly head, you know, later as something more sinister. We have a gang of questions. Can you stick around another 10, 15 minutes? All right. Mm -hmm. All right, Dr. King Mullins has a, a limited time here. So uh, thank you for sticking around. You can follow her at eking719 or Corona Mama one on the Twitters, hashtag Corona Mamas. Check that out. Let's just hit the phones. Angel in Detroit, welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Thank you for calling. Thank you for having me, Karen. And, and thank you um, for hosting this topic. Um, Dr. King Mullins, um, I just wanted to ask a question. You mentioned that if a woman had precancerous cells removed at some point in their lives, um, there's a strong possibility that they may develop 
I believe you said anal cancer in the future. So my question is, because I know a number of women, like we know on prayer lines, and they get these, you know, they come with these tests because they have precancerous cells. They're going to remove everything is free and clear, like from the doctor. They get a, a, a clear, a clean bill of health, right? And we think the fight is over. So what can they do in the future to help, you know, lessen the risk of, you know, developing anal cancer or, um, you know, any trouble down the line? Is there anything possible um, that we should be, you know, focused on? Mm-hmm. Great question, and thanks for bringing um, this up. You know, it's not necessarily that you have a, I don't, I don't want to get people scared and say, oh my gosh, you have a strong risk of having anal cancer, but there's a, there's a strong possibility that the HPV virus may involve the anal area. So the first step is to get, you know, an anal rectal exam, um, basically uh, at least number one, to look, to feel, and the best way to detect whether or not the HPV virus is present there is to do a pap smear in, in the anal area, just like you would do um, for your usual uh, GYN exams. So you get a swab or a brushing of the area, they collect some cells and send it off to the lab and they check for number one, precancerous changes. Um, and they also detect or check for those high risk strains of HPV. Um, some GYNs feel comfortable doing that exam. Some family practitioners feel comfortable doing that exam. Some GI physicians feel comfortable doing that exam. And what all else fails, you know, if you don't have a team of providers that already feel comfortable or can provide that testing for you, then you can seek out a colorectal surgeon. Oh, great advice. And uh, thank you. Uh, this is not to scare anyone. It's just to uh, remind us that we have to, this is a good time of year to go get everything checked out. Uh, Hester, Hester in Florida, welcome. And thank you, Angel. Hester, welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. You're on. Hi. Hi. Um, I was going to ask a question of Dr. Senyata because I have um, She's not lactose here, Okay. Yeah, <laughs> All right. All right. Um, so what, you were, you're lactose intolerant? Yeah. And I um, go ahead. I'm sorry. What, what kinds of um, milk should I use for the different concoctions that I have that Dr. Senyata put together. What, what are you using now? Uh, the lactate. Okay. All right. Let's talk to the colorectal surgeon. Uh, most, <laughs> most black folk are lactose intolerant because cow's milk is for cows. Goat's milk <laughs> is for goats. And we shouldn't be drinking milk for animals that go to 500 pounds and have five stomachs. <laughs> we should probably not be drinking that milk. And now with the bacteria, with all of the antibiotics and stuff that they put to keep the, I mean, it's just the industry yeah. can't be trusted. So even if it was pure, I feel like we shouldn't be drinking milk, period. And we're not growing babies. So <laughs> as a colorectal surgeon, what what do you suggest in terms, and, and are these other milks, these nut milks, these oat milks, are they mm-hmm. uh, damaging to the colon? I need to know. I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> as for a friend. So first, let me say, we have to make sure we differentiate between um, true lact- a lactose allergy versus a lactose intolerance. Now, a lactose allergy means, you know, kind of similar to um, like a gluten allergy. There's going to be an instantaneous allergic reaction, a purge or whatever. 
lactose intolerance is very similar to what we were talking a little bit before about carbs, where there's a certain limit to what you can consume that your body can process because it has to be, it's a type of sugar that needs to be broken down by an enzyme. So again, if you're having cheese eggs for breakfast, a big old sandwich, you know, Philly cheesesteak for lunch, and then pasta with a whole bunch of Parmesan cheese on it for dinner, and then you're drinking milkshakes in between that's a lot of lactose. So your body may not be necessarily able to handle it. So you're going to get the upset stomach, you know, diarrhea and all of those things. So some people just need to regulate the amount of lactose they're consuming instead of completely cutting it out. So is it like uh, alcohol in that way where mm-hmm. you're not giving your body a chance to break it down? Correct. Correct. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, you know, one thing just to differentiate between a true allergy and a certain level of intolerance. The second thing is there you can, so the inability to process the lactose, lactose, like we were just saying, is due to a lack of an enzyme. So there's those lack, uh, and this is, I'm not, um, you know, uh, promoting a particular brand, but the most common one that can pop to mind is the lactate. They have pills. So they actually, that's literally when you have to take that pill, like, you know, 20 minutes before you eat, that's supplying the enzymes, the digestive enzymes to be able to break down lactose. Or when you drink the lactose-free milk, that means that the lactose, that component has been removed from it. So then all of those non-dairy alternatives, the almond milks, the oat milks, and all of those things, those are going to have no lactose. And so there's a, those going to be fine. So any of one, so I would, rec- I would say, to you, um, Hester, I believe it was mm-hmm. any of those items that you know you can tolerate um, or your palate can tolerate. I'm pretty sure any of those other you know kind of maybe milk based concoctions that um, Dr. Senyata mentioned should be fine um, in the in that way. And then can as far we, as for the oat, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just. Can we be real? Like, if your body is telling you I don't like this, why are we right. taking a pill to force our body? to, to digest something that our body's telling us this doesn't agree with me. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of one of those things, just like an allergy. If somebody takes allergy shots, you know, they're, they're equipping their body to be able to better handle it. So, you know, it's really going to be a a personal preference at that point. You know, I know some people that are just like, you know, I just want my ice cream. (laughs) So they're like, however, I got to get my ice cream in. If I got to take a pill to enjoy my ice cream. So, you know, it's just kind of one of those things to, to each his own. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Hester. Uh, Francis in Detroit. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. You're on with Dr. Aaron King Mullins. Hi. Hi, Dr. Aaron King Mullins and Karen. Hi. Yes, I I have a neighbor, and uh, she's she'll be 80 in May. She has constant diarrhea, and uh, I know she eats her toast in the morning and and toast and coffee, and sometimes she don't eat anything else during a day. Uh, do you have any recommendations that I can give her? Ooh, so that's going to be loaded and I'm going to be one of those, uh, have to give you one of those dreaded answers. Well, it depends. Um, you know, the, the frequency with which we use the restroom varies from person to person based upon your metabolism, um, your diet, any, uh, medical problems that you have, any medicines that you take and potentially, you know, surgeries that you may have had. Um, So I'll just throw out there, you know, one of the most common surgeries that people have in the United States based upon our diet is, you know, having their gallbladder removed. Well, that changes your diet. So there we go. Um, So that changes your digestive process and people um, can oftentimes have looser, more frequent stools uh, based upon that. Um, You know, some medications are going to make you purge coffee. The caffeine in it is a stimulant. And for some people, it can really cause that reaction. So, you know, 
the first thing obviously is to make sure that um, a medical evaluation ensues to make sure you don't have a colitis, you know, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. There's other things that can actually affect um, more elderly individuals that we won't go into detail about, but lymphocytic colitis, microscopic colitis, collagenous, I mean, there's all different types of colitis that can cause those problems. So those are the things that need to be ruled out medically before you just start treating the diarrhea. Assuming if all of that has been done, um, I know you mentioned her eating toast. One of the things that we recommend, there's a certain diet uh, that we call the BRAT diet, B-R-A-T. So consuming things that are uh, bananas, rice, apples and applesauce, toast, like you just mentioned, those are things that can naturally thicken the bowel and, you know, um, uh, or fiber, you know, things that are, so even if it's just, if you're not eating the fruits and veggies, eating some sort of fiber supplement, like the, um, the psyllium husk, the flax seeds, the metamucils, benefibers, citrus cells, you know, there's fibercon pills, there's all sorts of types of things. Those are also ways that you can thicken the bowels. But the first things first is just to make sure that, you know, um, you've been evaluated by a physician, because if there's a medical issue that's causing it, you want that to be rectified first. Yes. Let's stop, you know, go to the doctors, especially if you can find a good one. Uh, Dr. King Mullins, I know you're going to be out on maternity leave in a few weeks, uh, but your colorectal wellness center is where, where can people go to, to have you as their amazing doctor? <laughs> so I'm in uh, Metro Atlanta. So I'm about 20 miles South of the city center, uh, Fayetteville, Georgia, um, colorectal wellness center. My website is colowellness.com. That's C-O-L-O wellness.com. And you can follow me on Twitter. Colo underscore wellness is my Twitter handle. All right. Well, we'll probably see you post baby. Uh, have an amazing experience with your little baby boy that's coming and much many blessings to you and your family and your other little girl and your husband and everybody. Thank you for being here today. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks, everybody. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.